Welcome to the Paleo View. I'm Stacy Toth, best-selling author and co-creator of PaleoParents.com, where we focus on real-life solutions for families seeking help. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of the Paleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to the Paleo View, everyone. And as promised, we do have a special guest this week. We do! (laughs) It's not often that we have guests on the podcast anymore, but I am super excited that Diana Rogers, who is, I think, maybe trying to go for, like, MVP, most frequent podcast guest, um, (laughs) has joined us. Diana's been on the show several times before. You may uh, recognize her blog, Sustainable Dish, and um, we did a show with her years ago talking about my digestive health um, because she also runs a nutritional practice. But um, I'm super excited to have you on the show this week, Diana, because you've been working on a special project that I think our listeners will be Jazz hands excited to hear about. Oh, oh, you made me do jazz hands just by saying jazz hands and I'm doing them right now. Oh, man. (laughs) We do a lot of jazz hands on the show whenever we can. That's that's our (laughs) our goal. Uh, You want me to just launch into it? uh, Tell tell everyone about the project because Stacey, make sure you're doing jazz hands as (laughs) frequently as possible. Nice. Uh, thank you so much for having me back. I actually get the most pingbacks to me from being on your show. Like I've had the most um, client referrals and just, you know, messages and stuff. So that's because our listeners are the best podcast listeners. They're, they're certainly the most engaged mm-hmm. of, of, of uh, most of the podcasts that I've been on. So I appreciate they are, they that. They're very, very, very fine folk. Yeah. Um, so for folks who don't know much about me, I am a dietitian. I uh, did a career switch. I was in natural foods marketing for a while and then helped out on the farm. Uh, I live on an organic farm with my husband and two kids. And once I had our second child, it just was too crazy to have a corporate marketing job. And so I started working on the farm doing, um, all of our CSA, our vegetable CSA membership stuff. I ran our farm stand. We had a kitchen. I kind of did all the marketing and events and weddings, kind of all the, all the front of the house stuff at the farm. And we were hosting a raw milk co-op. And I was like, who are these crazy people who are coming here and getting these jugs of milk and spending like $12 for this crazy milk that has all this fat in it. This is the silliest thing I've ever heard of. Um, and how long, how long ago was this that? was maybe 2008. Um, so maybe I 2006. Have time, I have times have changed. Yeah. <laughs> maybe 2006. I'm trying to remember. Yeah, no, actually it was a little bit before that. Cause my first Weston A price conference was 2008. So this was, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I just dipped my toes in it like 2005, 2006. And so I started learning a little bit more. I started actually eating butter. I had to hear it like a hundred times before I would actually eat butter. 
And I was already on a gluten-free diet because I had found out I, I diagnosed celiac at age 26, but I was just doing sort of this low fat, you know, mostly vegetarian, like lots of lentils and tofu and high carb gluten-free diet. Um, but lo and behold, once I added more fat in, I didn't have gestational diabetes with my second child. And then once I started going to these Weston A. Price conferences, I was like, oh my gosh, there's guys are really onto something. How can I get more involved? I kept getting all these questions and didn't really know how to answer them right about, you know, why are we selling coconut oil and lard at the farm stand? Aren't those bad for you? And I knew they were working for me, but I didn't really have a good, you know, solid response on why fat was good for you. And so I decided to attend Nutritional Therapy Association and got my NTP. I became a nutritional therapy practitioner, but then quickly realized that in order to really change my career and take insurance and do medical nutrition therapy, I needed my RD. So then I went back to school and got my RD and did that part-time with kids. And it took me about six years. And I think I came on the podcast right when I was celebrating. I have probably had yeah. a large bottle of wine next to me <laughs> <laughs> there. And um, so so ever since I got the RD and, you know, from all my experience living on the farm, I really started focusing more, you know, in addition to my, you know, clinical practice where I take insurance and help people mostly with IBS type things and, and metabolic type stuff. I'm really, really passionate about the intersection of sustainability and human nutrition. Like what, what are the best foods for us that are also the most sustainable? What are the most sustainable foods and are they healthy for us? And it turns out that there's a really huge Venn diagram and it sort of perfectly meshes with, you know, the foods that we grow on our farm happen to be also the most nutrient dense and healthiest ones. And, and lately in particular, I'm most interested in defending meat. So there's a lot going on in the, in the anti-meat world. Um, I live in a town outside of Boston where a lot of, you know, there's a lot of educated people here. Nobody eats red meat. They're super scared of it. They think that, you know, it's bad for the environment and it's going to give them cancer. And so they're all eating chicken, which is actually really hard to find a good pasture-raised chicken. You can find grass-fed beef even at Walmart these days, but you, pastured chicken is still, you know, I'm all for it, but it's, it's, it's hard to source. And so I'm really curious about diving into that more, and I've decided to start a film project called Kale vs. Cow, The Case for Better Meat. I'm all for all animal proteins, but I'm really honing in on cows because they're the most vilified. Like if you look at, if you picture those vegan hierarchies, you know, like uh, some people call themselves a vegetarian when they don't eat red meat, but they'll still eat chicken and fish, you know, chicken and fish are seen as, as cleaner meats than red meat. And why is that? That's, it's absolutely life you know, any different or more important or less important than a chicken, than a fish, you know, and then, and then even going up the hierarchy than a, than a tree. Right. Um, and when red meat is one of the most nutrient dense foods there are. So I'm going to be looking at all the sort of nutrition misconceptions we have about red meat, 
from the fat and the the um, cancer and kind of all that stuff. I'll be looking at the environmental impact of well-raised cattle and how they can actually help sequester carbon. And then I'm also diving into the ethical piece, which is super, you know, treacherous waters as I'm probably going to get a lot of flack for this. But, you know, when you really think about trying to cause least harm through your diet, is it really causing least harm to eat only plants when we think about, you know, how irrigation and monocropping and GMOs and chemical fertilizer, all that kind of stuff compared to, you know, how many people can one grass fed cow who's increasing biodiversity and sequestering carbon, you know, that's, that's nearly 500 pounds of, of incredibly nutrient dense meat, um, from that animal. And so, uh, yeah, so that's basically it. And we're going to be doing some storytelling. I'm sure, you know, we can dive into any one of these numerous rabbit holes with you guys on the show, (laughs) (laughs) but that's the, that's the film in a nutshell. I, as you know, happen to be incredibly passionate about this as well, because Mm -hmm. I was a vegetarian for seven years. And the only reason that I felt comfortable coming back into being a meat eater was to do it sustainably to, uh, support animals being raised ethically and uh, humanely and utilizing whole animal and helping the earth with treating them properly and, and good farming practices and that kind of stuff. So there have been countless topics on this podcast um, because I wrote a book about pastured pork beyond bacon mm-hmm. and, and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's, you know, one of the things that always gets me about particularly Americans loving chicken Mm -hmm. is that as a vegetarian, you know, it was like, I thought eating chicken and fish was somehow better than eating pork or cows. Mm -hmm. Um, But now that I'm on the other side of it, I'm like, wait, I can get so many more meals from one life. Like not just to mention all of the science and the crops and all that kind of stuff, which I know Sarah's going to want to sink her teeth into Uh, Mm because we've tangentially talked about that. But I I think what's fascinating for me is even just from the perspective of, you know, if if you care about life and you don't want to take a life, um, you can get so much more out of one life from a cow or a pig or even a goat than you could a chicken or a fish. Mm -hmm. So I am... um, I am extremely passionate about this. So before we jump into all of these rabbit holes, though, I think it would be good. So you're you're working on this project in particular. Maybe give a little more specific details. Like you're you're working on a campaign right now to help fund this coming to fruition, right? I am. Yes, uh, I have a link. I'm direct linking to my generosity.com fundraiser through my website, so folks can find it through sustainabledish.com backslash or forward. What is it? A forward slash or whatever slash forward slash, forward slash film. And um, so I've got all kinds of fun perks on there, and folks can see. Um, all the companies that have that have endorsed me there and they can watch the little video that I did and they can see me on my farm with my family um, and read a lot more about the approach that we're taking um, all there on on that page. So it's sustainabledish.com slash film. And I, I think we, I, it's important to sort of emphasize that there have been 
a number of crowdsourced documentaries recently, Mm -hmm. like a particular one that has most of the paleo community feeling. The the one that ends in a word that rhymes with smelt. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The one that encourages the opposite of what its title is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I am, I mean, this is this, I decided to tackle this because I've really had enough of these vegan propaganda films. They're showing them at high schools. There's, they have shown them at our local high school here and they're full of incredibly biased and illogical conclusions, misinformation. I mean, saying that meat causes diabetes is I mean I can't even believe the FDA like allowed these films to happen um and I'm really disturbed that they're showing them in schools there's also a couple of schools in the Brooklyn area that have gone vegetarian with the you know secret agenda of the organization behind it pushing them towards vegan and it's all stemming from this one organization that has this very sort of vanilla name like you know, the, the, I forget, like the healthy foods coalition or something, something silly like that. Um, or not silly, but very, you know, innocuous, you know, it doesn't sound, it doesn't sound like they're, you know, trying to push for veganism, but then you go to their site, you can get free posters saying peace on a plate with, uh, a, a plate with all vegetables on it, you know, explaining how, you know, you know, no animals were harmed for your meal. And that should have no business being in a public school, right? Like that, that to me is like a religious um, message. Um, So to impose those moral codes on young people and impressioning them with, you know, meat is bad at such a young age and to really be attacking meat instead of like the obvious thing is processed food here, everybody Um, it's, it's really, really disturbing to me. There's another organization that's similar to that, that's sending free textbooks to medical schools. Any medical school that wants them can get one of these books and they're, they're vegan nutrition textbooks. So they're sort of like, oh, we're just, you know, we're just out here doing good. And it's like, no, they're actually spreading this message. Um, this, this, Anti-meat message is making its way up into our dietary guidelines. Uh, It's actually, I just got an email from a farmer friend of mine. It's affecting her sales at farmer's markets because now in Massachusetts, um, you can get um, SNAP credits for, you know, you can go and buy your produce at the farmer's market. You get like double your produce if you go to a farmer's market, support local farmers. But they're not doing that with meat and it's actually hurting the meat vendors but, you know, it's this whole idea that meat is bad. Let's not let's not support, you know, you know, we can we can allow organic vegetable sales, but we can't allow local meat sales. Uh, so so this kind of stuff really bothers me. And it and it really infiltrates worldwide human nutrition because everyone wants to follow America. Right. And all these cultures are giving up their traditional foods and going with. American Western foods. It's a sign that you've made it when you can eat, you know, Western processed crap. And so we're ruining the lives of our, of our own people and everyone else on the planet. 
Um, and not only are everyone's health, but we're also ruining the soils and our ability to make food in the future. Okay. So that that's where I want to go with this conversation. Cause I think that, um, you know, with our, our audience, I think is very well in tuned with mm-hmm. the whole idea of there's nutrition that we get from plant foods that we can't get from animal foods and nutrition that we get from animal foods that we can't get from plant foods. Humans are inherently omnivores and we need to be eating both plant foods and animal foods in order to get balanced nutrition. And I think, uh, I think our, our listeners are, are fairly in tune with that, but I want to empower people, I think with some, um, discussion points to have with people in their lives who, um, are maybe saying, oh, well, I, I'm going to try this plant-based diet or I'm going to try v- vegan or whatever it is. Um, and I want to, I want to use you to fact check something. Um, so I'm totally putting you on the spot right now, but, um, Lear Keith ha- in, she wrote, uh, the vegetarian myth, which is yep. usually a book that I recommend to people as mm-hmm. a, like, well, actually, you know, there's, there's a lot of harm being done by grain-based diets and, mm-hmm vegan diets are nutritionally deficient. And here's a great, a great book to read on that, on that subject. But she has a statistic that is, um, if you take an acre of land and you monocrop it and you grow corn for animal feed and you have no other plant species on that land, that land can't support any, uh, insects or birds or, other kind of life, the soil is is treated and being depleted, so it doesn't have the diversity of bacteria. So you're you're really you're destroying the topsoil. You've got uh, fertilizer and pesticides that are leaching into uh, the water, mm-hmm. and you don't have any kind of biodiversity on that land. And with that one acre of uh, you know corn, you, you can truck to a you know factory farm and you can feed two cows for one year. And if you take that same acre of land and you restore it to its natural habitat where it's got grass and scrub trees and birds and insects and um, you, you've got a healthy topsoil with lots of bacteria in that soil and you have grass-fed, you know, free-range cattle on that one acre of land, you can feed two cows for one year. And this is one of, I, I think, one of her most compelling arguments for not just grass-fed meat, but also how terrible factory farming is and how how terrible industrial farming is and how it's mm-hmm. leaching topsoil. But I've never been able to sort of fact check the actual, like, is it, is it really equivalent? Is it really that one acre feeds the same number of cows for the same amount of time? Yeah. So that is a really tricky question because are we talking about an acre at Joel Salton's farm where he's built it up and it's amazing and super productive? Are we talking about Nevada where it's like pretty brittle environment? They don't get a lot of rain. So it's it's hard. But I did ask Joel what his numbers were on his farm. And it sounds like it's about, and and then he gets into, well, you have to have a mom to have a baby and you know what I mean? So there's like, there's a lot more than just like, can I grow a cow? Because you have to also get a mom pregnant and then they have a higher nutritional need and then you're not going to, you know, you're going to harvest the the baby. You're not going to harvest the mom. And so it's a calf cow situation. So there's that, but yes, it's about two cows per acre on a pretty productive um, you know, intensive grazing situation, but, um, there's a little more to it than that too, because the, 
the important thing to know is there's a really big difference between pasture land and croppable land. So if you look at all the agricultural land available on the globe, on the land of, of the world, most of it is actually not suitable for corn or soy or wheat because it's either too hilly or, you know, poor irrigation or whatever bad soils. So, I mean, just picture Iceland, right? You can't grow, it's too cold. Norway, you can't really grow much there. Um, most of Africa is is pretty inhospitable to, you know, water demanding crops. So, you know, we Americans, we picture that you can just grow crops anywhere, but it's actually not the case at all. So that's why like in Mongolia, they're hurting people with animals because they can't really crop Mongolia, right? Like you can't, (laughs) you can't have like big lush farms there because the climate just doesn't work for it, but you can graze animals on most land. Um, So there's a lot more pasture land than there is croppable land. Um, so if we were to just eliminate all animals and only go with crops, we'd actually be way reducing our land availability to grow food. Does this make sense? So, um, so when they say, oh, cows take up, you know, 50 acres of land compared to how much you can get off corn. Well, it's like, you're not really comparing, um, it's not fair to compare pasture land to cropland because cows don't need to compete with crops. Um, 85% of the cows that are grown or raised in America are grazing on land that we can't crop anyway. So it's really like, we're not really comparing apples to apples. And if you think about the whole Midwest, it was actually really grasslands. It's, it's, it's really pasture land. It shouldn't be cropped. And that's one of the reasons the Dust Bowl happened is because we cropped it. We eroded the topsoil. We've ruined it. Um, it should be in pasture. It should not be cropped. Um, That's I, a rabbit hole that I so warned many, you that so I have. <laughs> yes, no, and, and I, I feel like I have like seven follow-up questions. Yeah. Um, I, I really want to, to dig into this idea that uh, a plant-based diet can do more harm than good, not just from a mm-hmm. nutritional perspective, but more from the sustainability environmental perspective. And I, mm-hmm. I just kind of want to give you the opportunity to to dig into that subject a little bit more. Definitely. So, so beyond the fact that we would be uh, limiting our ability to grow, you know, calories and nutrition if mm-hmm. we globally switch to a plant-based diet, what are some other implications of uh, sort of abandoning meat as a nutrition source from a environmental and sustainable sustainability perspective. Um, There was just a really great paper that came out last week that I could send to you guys. And it looked at um, the nutrition, which was fascinating, but also the environmental implications of eliminating meat. Um, so Sarah, you'd be actually really interested in the, in the nutritional. Yeah, sounds input. like I would totally geek out over so that. So we, we would have excessive overall calories. We would have excessive carbohydrates and we would have nutrient deficiencies in B12 and a gazillion more nutrients. So just on a, on a population nu- nutrition level, it would be catastrophic. And that was the main conclusion of the paper. But then they did look at the environmental impact of eliminating animals. And even with eliminating factory farming, um, the total greenhouse gas reduction, it was only a couple percentage points. 
it's greenhouse gas emissions is really not is not really that big of a problem with animal farming. Um, when we look at crop farming, I mean, you kind of rattled off like a lot of the issues. So we've got um, we've got water misuse. We've got in California, there's a really great documentary um, called Water and Power, a California heist. And it talks about, you know, the palm um, juice company that that was really popular a few years back. And they have those bottles that are shaped like a hourglass. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, that company uh, the, is the wonderful company. And they also own basically all the um, uh, pistachio production, like in California, they like, they monopolize it. And they also happen to own a lot. They, this private company owns water rights in some aquifers that are, that are underneath California that actually end up feeding like most of the major cities in Southern California. And there are whole towns of people that do not have drinking water because this company has stuck their straw into the aquifers, sucked it up, and they're irrigating their pistachios with human drinking water Whoa. so when we think of like least harm it's like least harm to who are we really like trying to save you know the pretty cows that look like our pets in you know and then like not allowing people to have drinking water and when we're diverting rivers in order to have irrigation what happens to the fish in those rivers the animals that depend on that fish for food uh, you know, I mean, the list just goes on and on when we have runoff, you know, it's not just, oh, it's pollution. It's actually killing, you know, the fish in the waters. I mean, we've got a whole entire dead zone in, um, the Gulf of Mexico from cropping agriculture. This isn't factory farming here. This is crop agriculture that we've, that we've done. Um, and when we use chemical fertilizers, I mean, the earth is not an endless resource. It doesn't just like keep spewing out resources. Things do dry up. And so we're not going to have all the minerals and all the all the chemicals that we need in order to continue to have exponential growth in our in our productivity with cropping. It's going to die off and it is dying off. And so we're going to have huge problems. And if we don't start looking more at natural cycles, at the ability to harness the sun's power and grow grass that cows can eat um, on land that we can't crop anyway, then we're going to be in really big trouble. And so that's why I'm particularly disturbed by lab meats and um, like indoor farming is because it's the exact opposite of the way nature works and it's the exact opposite of just using sun directly to grow food. So, and not even to mention the human issue of like, who's harvesting your food. I never hear people talk about that. Um, you know, like there's, there are child, uh, laborers here that are being mistreated in America, harvesting our tomatoes and, you know, but we, but, you know, it's very easy to draw a line and say, well, plants are good and animals are bad. And to not really dive into all of the harm that comes from a plant-based diet. Um, one of the things that you mentioned was the greenhouse gas emissions. Mm -hmm. 
And I wanted you to kind of expand on that a little bit because that's one of the, mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the <laughs> One of the arguments or discussions that I will get into with, with family members um, who, who don't want to eat red meat is about, oh, well, you know, cows produce so much methane through their cow farts mm -hmm. and, um, and that's contributing to global warming. And so we need to reduce the, the cow population in order to reduce mm -hmm. the, the impact on, on the environment. And so I, I kind of want to get, give you that, like, let's mm -hmm. dig into that a little bit, a little bit more, because that's one of those like frustrating arguments that I have. Definitely. So when they're just measuring cow farts, it's really reductionism. They're looking at just, you know, what cows put out. And it's like, it's like the other studies when they're looking at, well, cows drink a lot of water. Okay, but they also pee a lot too. Like they're not just like exploding balloons, right? That we're <laughs> um and so there's this whole other cycle that happens when a cow is managed well on grass that they actually sequester carbon. And there's been lots of studies coming out recently about how cows are actually a net gain for carbon, that they're one of our best chances at storing carbon and reducing climate change. Oh. Um and so what we have to do is, is look at the entire cycle and not just measure farts because that's, you're not going to get anywhere measuring farts, right? <laughs> um, and so, you know, when, when we think about what the grasslands were before the settlers came to America, um, they, it was largely bison. And actually when you add up all the bison plus all the other deer and antelope and, and all the other animals that were, well, I don't know if there were antelope on in North America, but deer and other ruminants that were, that were, uh, roaming around on North America, it added up to a lot more animals than we have today. Mm. And so, you know, they were also farting as well. I'm sure they farted too. And that was um, the end of the ice age, <laughs> right? No, I, yeah. Um, so I, we I, hunt, yeah, we hunted them all out. We turned it into crop and what happened? The dust bowl, um, what happened? You know, we started processing food and, and we all got sick when, you know, we could just be eating more grass fed meat and be healthy. Right. Um, so yeah, so cows can actually help sequester carbon. It's, um, there's a couple of different ways that this happens. They're chomping on the grass actually stimulates the grass to grow. And their manure is actually not waste at all. It's fertilizer for the soil. There's all kinds of great bacteria in cow poop that inoculates the soil with really important bacteria that it needs to feed the roots. So the roots have the symbiotic relationship with the bacteria in the soil. Um, when the cow chomps on it, that stimulates the roots to grow. The bacteria are actually fed carbohydrates from the plant. So the the through photosynthesis, the plant creates carbon um, into its roots that it that it drips out to the bacteria. The bacteria in turn then feed the roots with all the different nutrients it needs, and it works with the fungal network to mine minerals. It's a really amazing process. And when when cows are on the same patch of land day in and day out, that's when we start to have problems. Then they can overgraze. They overgraze their favorite grasses, allowing for the not so great, you know, species to take over. Um, parasites can get out of control. It's, it's a bad system. But when the cows are rotated and constantly moved, like the herds of bison were 
moving. Uh, the grass has a chance to rest and recover, and that's when all the magic happens. That's when the carbon sequestration happens, and they're measuring this now, and it's amazing what's happening. So it's all about the management. So it's not the cow, it's how it's managed. How big of a hurdle is it to go to switch from this predominantly factory farming model producing most of the meat in America to these sort of grazing rotation models? Like even if those cows are still supplemented with food, like not not necessarily being purely grass fed and grass mm-hmm. finished, but like mm-hmm. switching to this model that's that's much more uh, environmentally friendly. How how big of a hurdle is that? Yeah, so a lot of people think that cows spend you know are raised on a feedlot their whole lives. They live on a feedlot forever, and it's actually not true. Even a typical cow is grazing on land that we can't we can't grow crops on, and then um, at the end it's finished on a feedlot. So there's they don't really start baby cows on feedlots. So even even a typical cow, I would argue, is a much better choice than your typical chicken or pork because it's those animals are spending their entire lives indoors in CAFOs under fluorescent lights eating 100% grain. Wow. Um, so so that was something that was really cool for me to discover, and and people tend to be really kind of surprised when they hear that. Um, to make the switch over to this kind of grazing technique, you do need a little bit more land access. And again, it's not land that we have to be cropping. So it doesn't need to compete with us for, you know, our kale and, and, and other things that we like to crop. Um, it's, it's more of a demand issue. And if ranchers and, um, and other, you know, producers realize that they can, that there's consumers that are out there that want this product and are willing to pay them for the time that it takes them to raise it this way, they will produce it. That's just how economics works. So we could literally just take this piece of the puzzle out where like cows are moved to a feedlot to fatten up for the last couple months of their lives. We could, and I'm not 100% against all, like, finishing. I I know that, uh, I mean, I personally eat all grass-fed, but I think there are, I have seen systems where, you know, they're finished on some grains, um, and it's, it's not, it's not what you might be picturing from some of the documentaries that are out there. It's, it's actually not like this horrific situation, right? Um, it's just a little more visible because we can drive by bad feedlots and we don't tend to drive by pork cafos and chicken cafos and see on the inside. And so that's why people are so like, oh my God, feedlot beef. Um, but yes, it ca- um, cows were meant to eat grass. That's what they eat. Um, and same with sheep as well. So it's not just cows, you know, bison, um, are great. Um, lamb is great. Goats are great. You know, there's, there's lots of, of ruminants who can also do the same thing. I'm just sort of honing in on cows because beef is just such a hot topic right now. Yeah. And the same arguments basically apply to all ruminants. What about pigs? Like pigs are naturally Mm -hmm. omnivores. Mm -hmm. Um, if you look at a pasture model for pigs, does that also have the same sort of benefits from an environmental standpoint? I mean, obviously it's better 
in terms of humanely raising that meat and mm-hmm. ethical treatment of the animals. And there are studies that definitely show that pasture-raised pork has more nutrients than um, feedlot or, or factory farm pig, CAFO mm-hmm. pig. But um, can you make the same? Can you make the same arguments from an environmental standpoint? Like they're sequestering carbon. They're. I mean, I. I would imagine they're still adding to topsoil and biodiversity and things like that by doing, you know, pooping. Sort of. Yeah. I mean, it's definitely better to raise them outdoors. They don't have the same impact on on land that cows do. Um, they're. They can be quite. pigs can be quite destructive on, I mean, we use them on our farm to clear land, right? Like they kind of go in, we, we run them through the woods and they get rid of all the brush and they'll leave the big trees, but pretty much everything else is gone. Um, and they eat it or do they like trample it? They, they sort of, they do this thing called rooting where they basically, they, well, they'll eat all the like poison ivy and, and all the other like brush that's in the woods here Candy. in Massachusetts. I know. Um, goats are awesome at that too. And then they will, um, they do this thing called rooting where they, um, I've Instagrammed it actually, where they kind of bury their heads down. They'll find the roots. I mean, the roots are rich in carbohydrates. And so they're, they're chomping on, on all that stuff. They, they love to eat tree roots and, and other roots. And so what's left after we've had a bunch of pigs running through the woods is really pretty woods, right? Like you like walk through them and, and it's just like the land is pretty clear. Um, so, you know, I mean, pigs initially were part of human culture because they ate our kitchen scraps. Um, And so that's kind of like everyone had like a pig and a few chickens and they ate our food scraps. But now it's illegal to feed pigs food scraps um, unless you like process it and and sanitize it all like right on site in these like very specific uh, ways. And so it makes they make it pretty difficult. Is that local or national law? Like where does that come from? Um, I, it might be a national law here. I know they're trying to reverse it in England right now. Um, there's like a big anti, um, or, or pro food waste to pigs, you know, like there's companies that are trying to make, you know, process leftover, uh, restaurant food and like cook it down and, and pasteurize it and then give it to farmers for pig food. It should be, I mean, that should be totally how we get rid of our, you know, it makes sense. Um, The other thing too is I know that there are a lot of farmers that do food farming. Um, So like in your case, when the orchard Mm -hmm. apples, whatever, fall to the ground and you can't sell them because they're bruised or they're overripe or whatever it is, like pigs love that. And Oh yeah, totally. Yep. And they actually on our farm too, they get all the vegetable seconds from, you know, like the broccoli that's maybe a little bit too old for us to sell. The pigs way prefer that to grain. We do feed our pigs um, organic soy-free grain on our farm um, just because we don't have that much natural food for them in the woods. There's just not that much here. I do know in 
warmer areas, like down where you got uh, down where you guys are, there are people that are doing a hundred percent pasture raised pigs. Um, it's just for us where we are with the land that we have, it's not possible. Um, but pigs are pretty efficient at converting grain to um, flesh, and they actually their stomachs they're monogastric. They they can actually handle grain like like it doesn't make them sick like it makes a cow sick. So it's a it's a little bit of a different model there. Yeah. Yeah. Same with chicken. Oh, I was going to say same with chickens too. Like chickens, actually, birds eat seeds. It's more that's what they do to their natural diet. It's a more biologically appropriate nutrition source for them, right? Right. Yeah. So I mean, it's it's been uh, obviously I don't know as much about chickens and and beef as I do about pork, but. I do think that it's, you know, kind of eye-opening for people to realize that it's healthier for the animals, it's healthier for the earth, and it's healthier for them. That's why humans have survived this way and harmony for so long without the strain on all of those different ecosystems and, and our own lives and health as we have introduced into the modern agriculture uh, culture. And I think, mm-hmm. you know, for me, it was like, I had that eye opening aha moment when I started thinking about how agriculture affected human health from the very first moment that I read the paleo diet, like a long, <laughs> almost a decade ago at this point. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and so for me, it's, it's such a full circle thing to see that we're, it's, it's almost like there was this, this, um, interest in paleo but there was only like this fringe movement of people who really understood the importance of the lifestyle factors and how and why um pasture raised animals were a component of that lifestyle and we haven't even talked about you know what we've delved into many times before when you're talking about like omega-3 and omega-6 ratio and how that affects Mm -hmm. your health and inflammation and blah 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 right like we've we've covered all that information before and i think what's fascinating to me is that there's this there's there's a large group of people that often do paleo for like 30 days and it's like this reset for them and then they go back to their life and that's never what at least my perception of paleo was ever supposed to be right it's a lifestyle to help reduce your inflammation and and help you be healthy. And here's this other facet of it that is also a long-term benefit. And it's, it's interesting because the word Sarah and I use about paleo is we want it to be sustainable for people. And Mm -hmm. that's what your blog is, you know, the, the main word, because we, we want to make sure that someone is setting themselves up in a way that can be sustained long-term. It's not, it's not going to give you the health benefits for 30 days and then you turn it off and, you go back to, you know, your pizza buffet and your bagel breakfast and, you know, everything's great again. There are serious long-term consequences to our earth and our environment and our own health when we don't take these things into consideration. So I guess maybe if you could recap for us what you think, like the main themes of Mm -hmm. this, um, documentary of sorts that you're working on Mm -hmm. and um how people could help you bring it to fruition so that these messages could be shared with a broader audience yeah so thank you you reminded me that i needed to stress 
the main big point, which you kind of summed up really nicely there when, I mean, we are nature. We're not, we're not separate from nature. We are part of the food system. We are uh, integrantly, uh, you know, important and uh, all things are important, right? All, all the insects are important. All the mammals are important. We're causing major mass extinctions right now by our impact on the earth. It's totally wrong. And I don't think that you can truly embrace the paleo lifestyle without getting this. Like anyone who truly gets it, gets paleo inherently should understand all these things that I'm talking about too. Um, so so thank you for reminding me that. Um, I think the main the main message of the film we can't allow the you know anti meat message to be taught in schools. It's not okay because meat is incredibly nutrient dense. It's very natural for people to be eating, and we don't want to be turning young people off from meat. It's just not the right message, and um, yeah. So. Basically, it's it's processed food. We all know this stuff. It's processed food is the real villain here, not meat. And um, and this is just, you know, to me, it's the most important thing. Like once you've fixed your health, now it's time to really look at the whole food system and try to do something about it. And there's really no one else out there that's saying any of this stuff. So, um, yeah, I guess that <laughs> that's. That's the, well, I, I can't think of anything else to add to that. Yeah, the campaign's going on, um, sustainabledish.com slash film. Uh, what we're trying to do right now is raise enough money to make a sizzle reel to show at Expo West. Um, Applegate is going to be sponsoring us to come to Expo West. They've given us a portion of the money that we need in order to get there, but we need the rest of the community to help us. And it's really great that Applegate, Applegate is uh, stepping up to the plate here. They're going to be having us on a panel about the nutrition and environmental benefits of meat. Uh, with our sizzle reel, we're then going to be able to go after funding and really turn this into a feature film. Oh, fun. So um, I'll remind people that it the campaign is uh, through mygenerosity.com, but you can link to it at, uh, make sure I got this right, sustainable dish slash film. Yes. Sustainable dish.com slash film. Sustainable dish.com slash film. And they can um, get updates too on my Instagram. I'm pretty active on Instagram. So it's. I, I mean, I, I found the pig video pretty easily, so. <laughs> I, I happen to say, Dana, your Instagram is one of my favorite to follow, um, because even if you just want pretty pictures of farm life, like, which is something I'm into. <laughs> so thank you. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again for joining us on the Paleo View. And I have to say, listeners, I'm very proud of you that... Um, Diana thinks that you're the best of all the podcast <laughs> listeners. I happen to think the same, but when our guests come on and say that, it's true. So thank you for being here week after week. If you'd like to continue to support the podcast, please don't forget to refer your friends, leave reviews, uh, comment, and engage on social media. 
and uh, visit our blogs, sustainabledish.com for uh, Miss Diana Rogers, who not only is a farm expert, but also, as she noted, a dietitian and NTP, and then thepaleomom.com and Real Everything. So you can find all kinds of information, get links to the show notes, anything that you're looking for on our blogs. And thanks again, Diana, for joining us this week. Um, I really enjoyed this conversation. I know all of our listeners did. And listeners, we'll be back next week. Uh, Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.